0: Hey, everyone. Today's Seeker Plus is sponsored by Lego. We've been playing around with the new Lego Technic series here at Seeker. It's real-life advanced building. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com slash technic to find your next Technic build. That's lego.com slash technic, which is T-E-C-H-N-I-C. Lego Technic, build for real. We're also sponsored by WGU. WGU is an online university that offers affordable degrees in business, IT, and healthcare. Their innovative learning model is designed to fit the lives of busy adults. Many industry certifications are included in their IT degree programs at no extra cost. If you're interested, you can get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu. Okay, so let's get into this everyone thanks for tuning in today for our episode on time travel this is gonna be big i'm really excited by the way i am trace when did we start becoming obsessed with time travel what is time anyway is time travel ever going to be possible and what would the consequences be and of course we have to ask have we already time traveled you guys have we this is going to be great over the next 30 or 40 minutes we're going to dive way into the physics and the theories and even some of the history of time travel It's going to be really awesome. Let's kick into it. Why are we obsessed with time travel was kind of a big question that we wanted to start with, right? Back to the Future, Time Cop, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Looper, Groundhog Day, Terminator, Time Bandits, Hot Tub Time Machine, Somewhere in Time, Star Trek, A Whole Bunch of Times, Army of Darkness, Planet of the Apes, even Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Time travel. It is all over. Pop culture and literature. Humans love it. We love it. I mean getting to go back or forward in time, seeing what the future looks like and what the earth is going to be and going back in time and fixing mistakes. That's obviously great, right? But where did this come from? Who was the first human to look at the world and see it as a little boat on a river and not as like, you know, the firmament? Time travel as a concept, and and when that came out, that's pretty hard to nail down. We found a few mentions in ancient mythology from all over the world about time travel. Uh, One of the early mentions that pops up a lot, that seems to have been difficult to confirm, is a guy named Mahabrata in Hindu mythology. I probably pronounced that wrong. Let me know if I did. Uh, Who traveled to heaven or an underwater kingdom or something, and then they fell asleep or something. Anyway, they return and find out they're in the future. This was written in about 700 BCE, 300 CE. But that's not the only example ever. That's just one of the earliest examples, a notable early example. Mostly people travel into the future in these mythological examples, and it was just a more common story. However, traveling back in time is a relatively new concept, and people got really excited about it once they heard about it, right? Whenever the first person thought it up, it kind of caught on. Again, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what was the very first story ever written about time travel going back. But there was a book by what many refer to as the first true science fiction author, Alexander Weltman, or Weltman, it's with a V. And it was published in Russia in 1836. And the premise of this was that the narrator hopped on a hippogriff, sounds familiar, and rode to ancient Greece, has a little chat with his homeboy Aristotle, and then goes on a little outing with his buddy Alexander the Great, Sounds like kind of awesome fiction story. And the concept is that he had to go back in time to do that. Aristotle would not have been alive in 1836, right? So you had to go back in time to meet them. But they don't really talk about that. It's not really how it works. So it's a rudimentary concept, but it is time travel. Uh, you could make that argument. Another one is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. This also introduced the idea of time travel. You, If you're somehow lived in the world of the west and are unfamiliar with a christmas carol you've got scrooge and three ghosts the past ghost the present ghost and the future ghost and scrooge gets to explore the choices he made in those three different places and he goes back in time to reassess mistakes that he's made in order to fix them it was originally published in 1843 and it's not really time travel by our definition because it was more of visions and that's how they looked at it in the book and the narrative but it was a time travel adventure, right? He was reliving the past. Another book, uh, maybe the first story ever published about time traveling both backward and to a different era belongs to Mark Twain and his book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. That was originally published in 1889, which is 100 years before producer Blair was born, by the way, 104 years before intern Denisha was born. Some less number for me. It's pretty crazy. That was just a sidebar, don't worry about it. It's kind of an interesting book about a guy who gets knocked in the head with a crowbar and it transports him back to the year 528. So there's not a lot of science there and it could, again, just be kind of a vision and he's not traveling by choice. It's not quite the same as what we want, right? This is all pre-science fiction. When we think of time travel today, we think of a concerted and or decided effort or the person, you know, the, the protagonist did something that took them back in time. A human jumps in a machine and goes somewhere, right? Falls into a hole, appears somewhere else. The idea of time travel came out only a few years, like that kind of time travel, came out only a few years after a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. The very famous book, considered the first time that that happened, H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. In fact, it's so iconic that when we think of a time-traveling device, we just call it a time machine. Like, that's how iconic this book was. So Mr. Wells gave us the first glimpse into this person traveling through time on purpose. If you haven't read the book, highly recommend it. It's a great book. Quick read. Pretty short. But the time traveler goes into the future on the time machine. There's hundreds of thousands of years. Loses the time machine. And I'm not going to spoil too much. You know, Morlock's Gardens. It's pretty awesome. Read it. But these fantastical ideas were gaining popularity. I mean, I don't know if you were taking notes here, but we've got The Russian guy in the mid 1800s, then we've got, you know, later 1800s with the Mark Twain book and with the H.G. Wells book. And because of those things, it seems like it's gaining popularity in the Victorian period, might have something to do with that, right? In the late 1800s, we had Jules Verne going to the bottom of the sea, to the center of the earth. We had uh, in 1902, George Millier and the Voyage to the Moon, right? The movie where they shot a giant gun at the moon. Science fiction was in its infancy, but we were dreaming about stuff and we were using science to help explain our dreams. But another question we had when we started doing this research was, why did it take so long for us to start thinking about this? I mean, if it's true that science fiction was the first time we started really thinking about the river of time and going back and forth up and down it, I mean, that's only like a hundred hundred and fifty years old. Maybe it just took humans a long time to think of the distant future as a thing that you could go to, a place you could travel, like going across the country. You know, it took us a long time to figure out that you could go so far, most likely, You know, the future wouldn't be that different because everything you'd heard about in the past generation was so similar to the present. So maybe the future didn't seem like a place you would want to go. Or maybe we just didn't have the energy. You know, we were just trying to survive. We didn't have the time to sit around and think about all the fancies of the future. Now we have a lot more free time. Maybe people just hadn't really started to question time, right? Maybe time was a thing that wasn't up for grabs, up for kind of questioning, up for analysis just kind of moved. But as science started to become a thing, and you had gentlemen scientists, like rich people who were able to spend their days thinking about this stuff, uh, kind of like scientist philosophers, gentlemen and gentlewomen also, the time travel bug caught on. And of course, we never really let it go because now there are shows and books and stuff everywhere. There's a book called The End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov that came out in 1955 about powerful time travelers from the future who distort the human timeline. There's, of course, books from the 90s, the Star Trek Voyager book series. Don't worry about it. I read them all when I was a kid. There are a whole bunch of other crazy science fiction novels and, of course, movies like Back to the Future. But why are we so obsessed with it? I mean, that's a question that you'd have to answer for yourself. Like, think about it. What is so intriguing about time travel? But every major cable station, NBC, ABC, and Fox, all have shows that have some sort of version of time travel. And maybe it's because we love looking back at our lives and saying, I would change that, I wish I could change this, and you know, talk to your friends that you don't see anymore, or loved ones who are gone now, and, and all that stuff is great. It makes people feel like they have some control over this crazy world we live in. But the main reason we see protagonists go back in time is to fix a mistake, and that never seems to work out the way that they think, right? It usually creates more problems than it solves. So maybe the whole reason we like this storyline is because it is a fictional way to appreciate the here and now and not worry about our decisions so much because changing them might only lead to bad things. Kind of fun to think about. But would this actually happen someday? You know, are we gonna get to time travel? Okay, so if you're gonna travel on something or through something or whatever, kind of the first step is knowing what it is. If I'm gonna build a boat, to sail on a lake, I probably need to understand water. So that's what we're talking about. And the problem with time travel is we don't really have a lot of definition of what time is. Because to be honest, a minute, a second, an hour, days, it's all relative depending on what planet you're on and depending on your experience. We invented the idea of time. Time is our perception of things, right? It's how we divide ourselves and our lives and our you know days but all of that is completely relative so what is time on a bigger question needs to be answered before we can travel through it and many people have been trying to answer this for a long long time and there are so many aspects to think about when considering time or explaining time but where i always start is the super simple easy to understand second law of thermodynamics i'm sure i don't have to tell you guys the first law of thermodynamics you've all heard matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed so the quantity of energy in the universe does not change easy peasy Second law of thermodynamics states that as energy is transferred or transformed, more and more of that energy is wasted. So this deals with the quality of energy in the universe, is how we try and put it into perspective. It also says that it's natural and basically unavoidable for every isolated system to slowly devolve into entropy. Entropy is a fancy science word. It's very difficult to explain with accuracy, but basically what we mean is disorder or chaos. Again, though, it's more complicated than that. So this is important when talking about time because the second law of thermodynamics gives us the arrow of time. If systems slowly devolve into entropy and they never go back, they never become less entropic, that means there must be only one way that time can move. It must move along this arrow of increasing entropy. Low entropy is more orderly. High entropy is more disorderly. This is, of course, all the way to the heat death of the universe. Everything's so entropic that it's over. It's done. So this gives us that arrow of time. But we didn't always think this way about time. For centuries, all of the most brilliant minds believed the universe. It was static. It was infinite. Time was constant throughout the universe. It was no different on Mars or Jupiter than it is here on Earth. Of course, at the time, we didn't know that the universe was actually expanding. This is proven now to be the case. And we also now know how old the universe is. It's roughly 13.8 billion years. But this all started with Moswain Einstein and his theories of relativity. You may have heard about this, covered it pretty exhaustively in our light series. But if you haven't tuned into that yet, because I'm sure you're going to after this, uh, we'll give you a refresher. How's that sound? Essentially, the speed of light is independent of the motion of the observer who's measuring the speed. So what does that mean? Let's say you're measuring the speed of a car passing you. It's going to seem like it's going faster if you're just sitting still watching it, but if you are in another car it's going to seem like it's going slower, driving alongside it, right? The speed of light is constant no matter what. That's pretty much what E equals MC squared. It's Constant. The speed of light is constant. And this is what Albert Einstein thought of in 1905. And it's known as special relativity. But it didn't tell the whole story because it only took into account the constant speed of light and not what happens to things accelerating or decelerating. Also, gravity. This is where the theory of general relativity comes in, with a bit of that special relativity as well. And it changed our perception of gravity completely. Gravity wasn't just a force essentially acting on two objects, but a warp of space-time by a massive object, like a planet or a star. Still with me here? Good. Think of it as a piece of fabric stretched out. That fabric is called space-time. Now, that fabric is also four-dimensional. It's not three-dimensional, it's four-dimensional. That's complicated, but think of it as fabric, right? Put a bowling ball in the middle of a bed sheet. It makes that curving motion toward the bowling ball. It's a bigger warp with a bowling ball than a baseball, right? So according to Einstein's theory of general and special relativities, that is how gravity works. Things with more mass warp space-time more. So time is essentially what we mean by the fourth dimension. So if you have length and width and heights, the z-axis and the y-axis and the x-axis, time gives us a direction and gravity can bend that fourth dimension. It can bend time. Now PhD students in physics, I know, I know. The fourth dimension is not technically time. It's way more complicated than that. I know that, I get it. Second law of thermodynamics, I'm with you, I understand. We're just trying to comprehend this, okay? This is tough stuff. Anyway, back to the story. So we've proved that this is pretty much how the universe works. And time moves slower relative to gravity and also speed. If you're still with me, let me put it all in perspective. If you are TLDL, too long, didn't listen, don't worry about it. Time is actually moving slower for things that are moving faster. So a satellite above the Earth that, say, carries a GPS thing, those GPS equipments have clocks on board, very, very accurate clocks, And they have to fix those clocks all the time. The reason they have to do that is because we are experiencing more gravity here on the ground. And so are our clocks. We're also moving slower. So relative to us, GPS satellites have a different experience of time. About 7,200 nanoseconds every day. So they have to fix it. This is known as time dilation. And if we didn't understand general relativity and special relativity, we wouldn't be able to fix GPS and you wouldn't be able to know where the nearest restaurant is. Isn't that crazy? Man, that guy Einstein. Swain, for sure. So, Einstein's theories of special and general relativity essentially showed that time travel could be possible because of the way gravity bends space-time. In 1935, Einstein teamed up with Nathan Rosen and created the idea of a wormhole. People who are really excited on the bus right now listening to this, yes, we're going there. The Einstein-Rosen Bridge. It's theoretical, and what most people would call a wormhole. It's a passage or a bridge through space-time. Think of it like two mouths at different points in time, right? Or think of it like a piece of paper that you fold over and stick a pencil through. The pencil makes a hole to two different points in the paper, and that is now the wormhole. Some people call it a throat. Some people call it a pipe thing. That's what we're going to call it because throat seems kind of weird. Two mouths and two throats. I don't know. It just sounds kind of gross. The math of Einstein's theory of general relativity actually proves That wormholes can exist. They can happen, but of course we've never found one. The math also shows the mouth of a wormhole could be a black hole. Check out our black hole series, it's super awesome, but black holes are not wormholes and don't go spreading that around. It's based on negative mass, don't worry about it. Anyway, wormholes are very unstable, but they could potentially have time travel as part of the deal. A theoretical physicist at Caltech, Kip Thorne, hypothesized that wormholes could also be time machines. It would require us to manipulate that wormhole, and we're not quite there yet. It would require an amazing amount of energy. Love you, Stargate SG-1, for also talking about this. But the Einstein-Rosen bridge isn't the only theory of time travel, if you combine it with Kip Thorne's idea of manipulating it. There are other theories as well, and they're pretty insane. For example, one you may not have heard of is called the Tipler Cylinder, and it came from the mind of an astronomer named Frank Tipler. And it is super interesting, although... Frank, man, what the heck? This is crazy. So, imagine a cylinder. Let's put it in space, because that's easier, right? It's made out of a material ten times the mass of the sun, and it spins on a vertical axis, but, like, really, 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 really fast. A few billion revolutions per minute, which would create a frame-dragging effect. I don't understand exactly what that is, but you can ask Tipler about it. Tipler says that any ship that followed a course around the cylinder would be in a closed- time-like curve because of the way that cylinder and its very high mass would be affecting gravity. The closed time-like curve he abbreviated as a CTC. So when it comes out of that course around the CTC, it would be years in the future. But they could also possibly be galaxies away. There are a bunch of things wrong with this theory, no offense Tipler, Uh, The cylinder would have to be infinitely long, and weird stuff would happen toward the bottom and the top of the cylinder, and the ship would have to steer clear of all of that. And the theory came out in 1974, which probably surprises no one. LSD, very popular around that time. Anyway, there's also another theory of cosmic strings. It's another time travel theory. Think of Narrow tubes of energy that stretch the entire length of the universe. They'd have such crazy amounts of mass that they would warp space-time. Again, based on mass, gravity, and the space-time connection. If these two bad boys ran parallel to each other, some theorized that could make time travel possible. There'd be so much gravity there. I'm not going to try and explain it, because I don't fully understand it myself. But it's super neat. But of course, there's also the most popular one in fiction, and that is the actual time machine like a machine. However, there are people who are thinking about how this could be done in real life, a real-time machine. Now, it gets kind of funky, so stick with me. As we mentioned earlier, the Tipler cylinder is the closed time-like curve, or CTC, and you need that to travel through time. It's one way to do it, right? Easy peasy. So to create this without an infinitely long cylinder that spins billions of times per second with the sun and all of the mass and all of whatever, you can do this smaller. Think of a donut-shaped hole inside of a sphere made up of normal matter. so like, I don't know, metal or something. Inside of that hole, space-time could be bent on itself with gravitational fields. Okay? If you can manipulate gravitational fields to such a degree that you can create enough gravity, that would form a closed time-like curve. So to travel back in time, a person would just need to run around inside of this donut-shaped thing, and somehow it would... Take them back in time. I'm not sure that I even completely understand this. Why can't we just fly a Klingon bird of prey around the sun? Can we just do that? That'd be great. Star Trek 4 Let's say we overcame all the things that limit us, right? And we could theoretically travel through time. Let's just say, you know, Rick and Morty are out there and they've figured it out. So what paradoxes would arise if we were to actually do that? Okay, paradox is a cool word. It's got an X in it. Everybody loves Xs when they're trying to think of cool words. But what is a paradox? It basically means there is a contradiction in logic. One that you can think of right off the bat is the time-space relevancy in time travel. This is a thing that I've come up with over the years. If Marty McFly was driving through the Twin Pines Mall parking lot and he went back in time, say, an hour, the Twin Pines parking lot would not be there anymore because the Earth would have moved. In that hour, the Earth has traveled around the sun. The solar system has moved through the galaxy. The galaxy has moved through the universe. That parking lot is not there an hour ago. It's in a completely different three-dimensional location. That is a problem that I have with time travel in general. It's a contradiction in logic. But a lot more paradoxes come around in the case of real time travel thoughts, right? And as we understand the universe and cause, it becomes a little more complicated to think of cause and effect without coming into paradoxes. So traveling back in time to before you were born doesn't make sense, because you weren't there. Okay, let me explain it this way. The granddaddy of all time travel paradoxes, pun, absolutely, completely intended, the grandfather paradox. You've definitely heard of this if you've ever talked about time travel while at a bar with your friends. Just me, cool. So the little explanation of this is essentially you go back in time and somehow want to kill your grandpapa, okay? I don't know why you would want to do that. He's a nice guy. Maybe he's not a nice guy. I don't know. Regardless. So you go back and you kill him before he was able to get with your grandma and create your dad. If he didn't have a chance to conceive you, how would you have been able to have been born, get into the DeLorean, and go back to kill your grandfather, right? That is a paradox. It's a logical flaw. And the thing about those paradoxes is you can create this loop of... Okay, well, you go back and kill your grandfather, but then that's a paradox, so it never should have happened, so somehow it's repaired, but then your grandfather is able to conceive you, and then you go back and kill your grandfather. But in doing so, now you have ruined the timeline, so you have another timeline, and you you end up with this loop, and it's bad. It's bad. So remember those closed time-like curves we were talking about earlier, the CTCs? If you don't remember that, go back and watch yesterday's episode. Basically, a really powerful gravitational field that bends time back onto itself? You can have those and solve the grandfather paradox. Super cool, kind of. Not at a macro level, on a quantum level. I know, it's kind of a cop-out. In 2014, a physicist from the University of Queensland, Tim Ralph, and his team experimented with CTCs in relation to the grandfather paradox. The idea being, you could look at interactions of pairs of polarized photons in a quantum system. So they think that this is the same as a single photon transversing a CTC. Now that's complicated. So basically, if a person, or in this case, a quantum particle, entered a CTC to kill their pop pop, that person would be born with a one half probability to kill their grandfather. Pop pop would then have a one half probability of escaping death at the hands of their stupid grandchild who was a jerk and tried to kill him. Now, if you think about it, because there's a one half probability, you haven't technically created a paradox because there's a chance that it doesn't happen. Now, I know this is complicated, and it's kind of insane, but we can get into a conversation in the comments about why that that works. It's really about mathematics. But let's say you went back and you did kill your pop-pop. What happens then, right? You can't create this time loop, so something has to happen. Well, in some fiction, they call this a skewed timeline or a new timeline or something like that, a la Back to the Future, and then you go back into... The future again, you didn't have a grandfather, but somehow you are still there, and the future is different. Now, your pop pop might not have been a super consequential person in history, maybe they were. Let's say your pop pop was Hitler. You go back, you kill Hitler, that's gonna change the world in some ways, say a lot of people. And you travel back into the future, and the things are very different. But there are theories here that say you didn't time travel at all, you went to a different timeline where Hitler was killed, and then you went back into the future along that new timeline the whole time. Essentially, you went into a parallel timeline when you left yours. You didn't go back on your timeline. This is complicated, but think of it this way. A highway with two lanes running parallel. What you're thinking is you're gonna go backward along your same lane, but in reality, you switched lanes and then went backward. You never were in your lane again. You didn't time travel at all. You just went somewhere else. And there could be infinite universes with infinite timelines, which is how this could work out. You just hop to the right timeline where the thing that you did works. I know this is tough. Now imagine the physicists who sat down and had to think about this all day. So hold that thought just for a second, because I have to actually tell you about the socks that I'm wearing right now. They are called Bombas and they're the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. Well, the history of socks, at least. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that is reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, these Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. All of my other socks, they just don't seem as good now. So go to bombas.com slash seeker and use the code seeker for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot seeker, code seeker, and you will get 20% off your first order. Time paradoxes are inevitable when talking about the time travel discussion. Think of the butterfly effect. Yes, the movie with Ashton. It's a common idea that we think of when thinking of a person messing up the past. You know, one little change changes everything else. The real butterfly effect, by the way, sidebar, I have to say this, is about weather modeling and changing something small and creating a massive shift, relatively speaking. Think of a pendulum that has two sections. The butterfly effect is deciding where to drop the pendulum from, and little changes in where you drop the pendulum from is going to change the output of that pendulum's movement drastically. That's the real butterfly effect, but in the movie. I get you. Okay. However, sitting on a butterfly in the past, after fixing, you know, a toaster that you were able to go back in time and do that thing, that's a thing. And does it have vast consequences on the future? What does the science say, or the thinkers in this area say? it's difficult to really ascertain if killing a butterfly is going to make a big change, right? The butterfly effect shows that these are massive systems. Let me put it this way. The butterfly effect in the dictionary says a butterfly flaps its wings and starts a hurricane somewhere else. But the butterfly wings are not actually that big a deal in comparison to a hurricane moving hundreds of miles an hour. So it's not actually the butterfly. And that thing should probably drop out of all of time travel discussions. According to Stephen Hawking, the complexity of the equations that it would take to predict the future is beyond our grasp. So to be able to have chaos theory understand what one little change would make in the future is beyond our comprehension. There's no way to know if killing a butterfly in the past would make big consequences. That being said, it seems like It could make a change. We just don't have any idea what it would be. Another interesting paradox, which we found, and it's similar to the grandfather paradox, there are a lot of these, by the way, is the bootstrap paradox. Think of an idea of an object being sent back in time where the origin of the object is trapped in this paradoxical loop. We like the example from the University of Massachusetts professor named David Toomey. This is where a time traveler buys a copy of Hamlet, just a regular bookstore, copy of Hamlet. Walks out, gets in his time machine, goes back, and hands it to Shakespeare and says, Hey man, it's a great book. You should read it. And Shakespeare's like, Who wrote it? He's like, mm, I did. But you can have it. Shakespeare copies it and then claims it as his own. Centuries later, the time traveler goes to the bookstore. And there's Hamlet by Shakespeare, grabs it, gets back in his time machine. And I say back, but really, this is for the first time. Essentially, who wrote Hamlet in that loop? Where did it go? Where did it come from? It just exists without ever being created. That is also a flawed logic paradox. If you're still with me right now, awesome. Hi, thanks for sticking around. I've thrown a lot of paradoxes and a lot of questions, a lot of very confusing stuff at you. I'm sure your brain is just loving it. I know when we were doing this, we needed a lot of coffee and a lot of uh, heavy discussion. (laughs) But there are a few more things I wanna talk about, and that's the solutions. For these paradoxes. And there are a few of them, but they're only hypotheses. The easiest solution is that time travel, at least back in time, it's impossible because of the paradoxes that would arise. Basically, time or the universe itself does not allow time travel. There's also the self-healing hypothesis. It says that altering events in the past sets off a new set of events, but the new set of events makes the events of your present day exactly the same also known as the Novikov self-consistency principle. Let me put that one in perspective. You go back and kill your grandpop. Turns out that you were never actually that guy's kid. Your grandpa was always killed by you, but it didn't matter because somehow throughout the set of time, you were just somebody else's kid. And you were always that, but you didn't know it. You know, essentially time is consistent regardless of the changes you make because they've already been made. Kind of like that one. Then there's the multiverse hypothesis. We briefly mentioned that one earlier where there are multiple lanes, remember, or parallel groups for every event you alter in the past, a new timeline is created, and you're never returning to your original timeline, you're just going to a new timeline. But last but not least is the erased timeline hypothesis, and that says a person can change events in the past, but then their timeline is erased. They cannot go back to the future and would only go to the new timeline they created. It's not a skewed timeline. It's just this is the timeline and the old one no longer exists. Super crazy. When you think about time travel, the problem that you run into is understanding all of the nuances, which, as much as I gave it a little hate earlier, brings us back to that butterfly effect, right? The idea is, and I'm going to use weather as an example, if you and I were to stand on the shore of Japan and start waving, a big fan at the United States, we're not going to cause a hurricane, but we are going to affect what happens locally. That's what's going to be a big deal. There are so many moving parts in just the weather system between Japan and the United States. Now imagine the weather system between the Japan and the United States throughout all of the history of Earth. That's where time travel gets crazy. <laughs> Because you can't just think about it as what's happening now or what did happen at that moment you went back. You have to think about everything that ever hit every other molecule in between on the way to the future. The universe is filled with chaos. And chaos theory and time travel theories and hypotheses on this stuff try and put it in perspective and to wrap our little primate brains around it. But there are so many moving parts. So to go back to my not really a paradox of you know, the DeLorean going back to the Lone Pine Mall. It doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter that the Earth is moved, that the solar system is moved. That's kind of a pedantic argument. The point is that we're thinking about this thing and trying to put something that is so beyond our comprehension inside our comprehension, We're never going to perceive the fourth dimension, but we're trying to wrap our little brains around it. And that's the important thing. The conversation is fun. It's super interesting. And I think that almost answers why we love talking about it, right? So earlier, we did mention a bunch of paradoxes. They're very confusing. And we don't really know all of the paradoxes on this show. We're not time travel experts, but we've laid out some of the ones that we thought were super interesting. But most of those time travel paradoxes come about when you go back in time and change something. We are sort of already time-traveling right now. It's kind of crazy. Let me turn it over to my main man, Kip, theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology, Kip Thorne. Quote, "...first let me say that time travel is already happening." End quote. That's right. He is one of the foremost theoretical physicists. He worked with the movie Interstellar. They actually wrote a paper because of the work that they did looking at black holes, gravitation, and time travel, and time dilation in that film. Anyway, let me continue. Continuing quote, the global positioning system I use to navigate with my smartphone has to deal with that. Time is flowing more slowly for us than it is for something on that satellite. We briefly mentioned this earlier. Uh, It's a term, time dilation. GPS satellites have to deal with them all the time and we could not have GPS were it not for the way the universe works and our understanding of that under Einstein's theory of general relativity. Let me give you a little explanation of time dilation, as done by astrophysics professor Dr. Brian Coberlin from the Rochester Institute of Technology. The speed of light is a constant. To use E equals mc squared, that's the C. That stuff doesn't change. It's around 300 kilometers per second, a little slower. Uh, Again, no matter what happens in the universe, that is a constant. So our reference to time has to change relative to that. GPS satellites are orbiting at speeds of around 14,000 kilometers an hour, And the time on that satellite is slowed because it's traveling so fast. Or if you think about it as yourself, which humans are a little bit self-centric, we are moving slower relative to that satellite. That is relativity, well, special relativity, really. But it isn't just the satellite speed that creates this time dilation effect. We mentioned it also earlier, but gravity affects your time reference. On Earth, It's a pretty big thing. It's got a lot of mass. So we are experiencing more gravity than a satellite even just a few hundred miles away. Because we are on a planet that is warping gravity, it's also warping space-time. So our time on Earth's surface is moving slower than something on a GPS satellite. And that is general relativity. So time is relative for a variety of different reasons, both special and general. And in case you're wondering, just a little sidebar here, there are about 24... GPS satellites orbiting the planet about 20,000 kilometers up. They're going, again, about 14,000 kilometers per hour. And each of those satellites has an atomic clock on board. Atomic clocks are not nuclear. They're literally just measuring the vibrations of a cesium atom. You know, so many billions of vibrations, that means one second. And we've also got one here on the Earth. Well, we've got more than one. We've got lots of them. But they're accurate up to about one billionth of a second, or one nanosecond. And the reference clocks that those would sync to are at the U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. And the clocks on Earth's surface are our standard measure of time. So every now and then, they check the satellites, and the satellites go, oh, the clocks don't match. So they correct them by about 15 and a half nanoseconds every day. That's actually kind of a lot, right? 15 and a half nanoseconds per day. I mean, given time, because these have to be so accurate, they wouldn't even work anymore if we didn't correct this clock. Anyway, so those satellites are time traveling right now. If we didn't understand time travel, you would not know where the nearest ramen place is. That's crazy to me. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Satellites aren't the only thing up there in space, and you would be absolutely correct. Astronauts are also up there. And astronauts in space experience different time than we do. But not by a lot. This is where it gets kind of like, oh, kind of sad, right? In fact, they age a little faster up there than we do, and that is because time is moving faster for them. We are moving slower relative to them. But the increment is so tiny. If an astronaut went to space for a year, and they had a twin brother, you know, you could say that this happened because of Scott Kelly, was just up in space for a year. And he has a twin down here on Earth. So Scott aged a little bit faster than his twin brother. He is now .01 seconds older than him now that he's back on the ground. .01 seconds though, that's not very much. If you are waiting for a text message to come back to you, you know, you send a text to your friend and you're waiting for them to reply, .01 seconds, you gotta be pretty happy with that because there is nothing worse than waiting all of that time for a reply, right? Time is relative. 0.01 0.01 seconds, A-okay. But the man who has traveled more than anybody, time travel, you could say, is Sergei Krivilev. This dude has spent 803 days, 9 hours, and 39 minutes in space, which means he's actually traveled 0.02 seconds into his own future. That's cool, but that's still not very much. Technically, I just want to point this out, maybe blow your mind a little bit with time travel. Because of gravity, and actually because of rotational energy of the Earth moving, your head ages more quickly than your feet because it's further away from the big massive object on the ground. Time also passes faster for people living on a mountain than for people living at sea level or below sea level. Think about that. If you work on an airplane or on the top floor of a really, really tall building, you're aging faster than people who are staying on the ground all the time. Time travel, all the time, happens constantly. You probably don't even notice. My buddy Ray in college had this idea that if time travel was real and he ever had access to it, he would come back to this exact moment and give himself $5. And then he would say, show me the money. Because you got to give time travelers, you know, sometimes they take time for them to show up. Anyway, obviously no time travelers, because Ray never got five bucks. Never happened. Sorry, Ray. There are people who have tried to prove that time travel has already happened. For example, in 2010, a filmmaker named George Clark apparently caught an old woman talking on a cell phone in a movie called The Circus. It's a Charlie Chaplin film from 1928. He couldn't prove it, obviously, but it looks like there's a person talking on a cell phone. Super interesting. You can Google it. Kind of neat but it could have just been some sort of hearing instrument. You know, we don't know what was actually happening. Stephen Hawking, one of the more brilliant minds on the planet, also wanted to prove time travel. He must have overheard my buddy Ray talking because what he did is he, quote, conducted an experiment to test for time travelers. He had experimental evidence that time travel is not possible. He told this to Ars Technica. He said, I gave a party for time travelers, but I didn't send out the invitations until after the party. I sat there a long time, but no one came. (laughs) He's obviously cheeky, but come on, this kind of genius, you know? He's a fairly famous scientist, one of the great minds on our planet. If a time traveler wanted to meet Stephen Hawking, what better way than at a time travel party? And the only way the time traveler would know was was after the party already happened. They could go back. And they didn't. Nobody showed up. I'm just picturing Stephen Hawking with the party hat on. And that's the best. It's the best thing. If someone photoshops that, please send it to me. So maybe there aren't people physically traveling through time just yet. Or... If they are, they're not making themselves known. That is something we want to make sure, and we mentioned. Maybe they just want to keep it a secret. But if you want to try it, there is sort of a way to try time travel. According to Professor Endel Tulving, the University of Toronto, you can travel backward in time anytime you want, as well as into the future in something called chronesthesia. It's known as a, quote, hypothetical brain-mind ability or capacity acquired by humans through evolution that allows them to be constantly aware of both the past and the future, end quote. We usually think of memories as episodic, a recollection of past personal experiences, right? It's, it's time-related. It's time travel to sink into the past. But not all forms of memory are time-related. Quote, you don't need mental time travel to remember a chemical formula or your mother's maiden name. You can know a lot of things without time traveling, but you can't remember events from your past or anticipate your future without it. He explains we developed this ability to learn how to avoid things in the future. We can predict the future, and sometimes with pretty stunning accuracy. I mean, think about how many times you've caught a baseball You're not really thinking about where the baseball is. You're anticipating its position. You are looking into the future. When somebody throws a giant football, they're trying to get to a spot in space that doesn't exist except in their brain. They're sort of time-traveling. Sort of. Kind of. Not really. But they're not not (laughs) time-traveling. And even Tulving claimed that there's basically zero hard science evidence for this, but it's an idea, an interesting idea. And along those same lines, maybe time... really just how we perceive it, right? Philosophers have thought about this idea for hundreds or thousands of years. Immanuel Kant wrote that we do not think of time as a physical thing. It's a pure form of sensible intuition. But beyond philosophy, we respond to stimulations in a certain way the first time something happens to us because time doesn't actually play a part. For example, the first time you watch a movie, the movie might seem longer. And then the second time you see it, it might seem shorter right? The first time you read a book or something, it might seem shorter because you liked it so much, and the second time it might just drag on and on. All of that is relative, even though it might even take an hour to do both tasks each time, especially if you're watching a movie, right? The movie's still two hours. It just feels longer or feels shorter. The more we experience that or other stimulation, the more time begins to enter our mind as memories, and we're conditioned based on that. I like this thing from a Wired.com article, and it says, quote, according to the scientists, our ability to remember the past but not the future is a historically confounding manifestation of the arrow of time. But it could be understood as a buildup of correlations between interacting particles, right? When you read something on a piece of paper, your brain correlates that with the photons that are reaching your eyes at that moment. Only from that moment on will you be capable of remembering what the message says. So maybe we can't see the future because we haven't seen it yet, and we haven't seen it yet because of that arrow of time, right? Or as they put it, the present can be defined by the process of becoming correlated with our surroundings. We haven't experienced that photon, and our brain doesn't work until it experiences it. We can't make a memory until that happens. It's a little kind of cerebral, but it's cool. I think my favorite thing to remember when it comes to this entire huge conversation about time travel is that time isn't real. It's not. Yes, the arrow of time is real. Yes, the second law of thermodynamics as we understand it applies. Yes, increasing entropy means that the universe is aging until it gets to an overall heat death. But aging, what does that mean? The universe is doing something and we are perceiving it as time. Time does not exist. There's no such thing as a minute. There's no such thing as an hour. There is such thing as the number of revolutions around the, the, that the planet makes or that we go around our sun. Those things really happen. But let me put it this way. Your perception of time doesn't matter to the universe. And that's okay. Because no one person or one organism or one thing's perception is correct. The sun would see time differently than the earth and the little things that live on the earth would see it differently than the earth itself. There's a thing called geologic time, you know? The Earth doesn't barely even know we've been here yet. Mayflies have a 24-hour lifespan. Do you think they're running around that whole time being like, oh my god, oh only got 24 hours, I gotta do so much stuff. For them, time might seem really long. That 24 hours could take forever. To them, we don't know, because time is so based in perception. Gravity and speed and all of those things on Earth gives us time, right? It's different on different planets, even. Our planet is moving about 7.8 kilometers per second around the sun. Our solar system is specifically moving around 230 kilometers per second in in a different direction, but toward a constellation nearby. If you were to stand somehow completely still in space, not on our planet, and just park yourself there and watch the Earth go by, you would have a different perception of time than the people on the Earth, right? because time is relative we already know that gps satellites perceive time differently so all you'd have to do is go park yourself somewhere else and you would be time traveling it's so interesting oh my god my brain my brain hurts so much guys thanks so much for tuning in here about time travel on itunes and maybe you're listening on soundcloud i see you soundcloud people thank you so much for tuning in there too you guys are the best we hope that you loved this episode if you did Give us a rating. Share us with your friends. You know, go talk about time travel out in the world. And when people are like, wow, where did you hear about the bootstrap paradox? You can be like, Trace was telling me about it, but I did not do this alone. This episode was written by Blair Battenberg. It was edited by Braith Miller and Blair Battenberg, and it was shot by Sierra Williams. An extra shout out to our awesome intern, Denisha Calderon, for helping us. Thanks so much, everybody. And I will see you next time. This episode was made possible thanks to WGU, the online university that's changing lives by changing higher education. WGU is affordable and offers degrees in business, IT, and healthcare. Their innovative learning model is designed to fit the lives of busy adults. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu/seeker.